Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. First off, I want to thank everybody for coming today. Good afternoon. My name is Frank Marlowe. I am the Dean of Academics here at the Institute of World Politics. Uh, For those of you who aren't familiar with IWP, we are a graduate graduate school. We have uh, five master's degrees. We have 18 certificate programs. We also have a doctoral program. Uh, If you're interested in any uh, learning more about the academic programs here, uh, please feel free to see me or any any member of the staff, and we'll be happy to give you more information on all of that. Um, let me uh, let me take the honor now of introducing um, our, our speaker for today, Dr. Christophilus Megidis. He received a thorough education in classical lyceum at at the Anavrita. Say I, I, I'm going to apologize in advance if I butcher any of the French, any of the <laughs> or French words, uh, any of the, the Greek words in, in all of this. Um, he went on to receive a bachelor's in history and archaeology from the University of Athens, where he was awarded several honorary distinctions and scholarships for excellence. He further pursued his graduate studies while on prestigious fellowships, the Fulbright, the William Penn, and the Charles William Fellowships, which are all quite impressive and received a PhD in classical archeology span in 1994 from the University of Pennsylvania. He completed postdoctoral studies as a fellow at Brown University and as a White Levy Research Fellow at Harvard University. Uh, he has taught archeology, span ancient history, classics, and philosophy at uh, college campus and at the University of Indianapolis, Athens. In 2001, he joined uh, Dickinson College as the Christopher Roberts Professor of Archaeology in the Department of Archaeology, where he has been teaching courses on art, architecture, and archaeology in the prehistoric Aegean, classical Greek, uh, classical Greece, Republican, and Imperial Rome, Egypt, the Near East, Mesopotamia, and Anatolia, in ancient Greek uh, religion and athletics, Athenian democracy, ancient burial customs, and ancient technology. I have no idea how you have time to do all of that. <laughs> how many courses are you teaching here? Uh, <laughs> whatever they're paying you is not enough. I think. Um, <laughs> seems to be a common problem. Um, he is an active. He's also an active field archaeologist with long field experience uh, since 1985 as a trench master and sector supervisor at major, major archaeological digs. He has served as field director of the Lower Town Excavation at Mycena, uh, uh, co-director of the Mycenaean Valley Archaeological uh, Project and director of the Archaeogeophysical Survey of the Citadel of Glass. He was elected member of the Athens Archaeological Society in 1999 and president of the Mycenae Foundation in 2013. His main research interests focus on Aegean prehistory, but also include classical sculpture and archaeo- architecture, archaeological methodology, and interpretation. 
So after that introduction, uh, my great pleasure to introduce uh, Dr. Christophilus Michaelis. Thank you so much for coming here. Not at all. all right. uh, I would like to thank uh, Dean Marlowe and Vice President uh, Chris Glass and Vice President uh, John Lovell for, you know, meeting me and uh, uh, basically inviting me to, to give this lecture here. It's an honor and a privilege to give the lecture at the Institute uh, of War Politics. Um, let's see, let's go. Let's move to the actual site. All right. Ancient and modern democracy, ideology, morphology, and pathology. Well, when in 1950, Churchill, Winston Churchill, said that excluding all other constitutions, Democracy is the worst. <laughs> Basically saying that really we have no other option. That's the only viable option. So, you know, it's something that concerns us all, not me as an archaeologist or, you know, uh, political leaders or um, diplomats. Uh, it's the way we live. We, you know, democracy was born uh, in ancient Greece um, and um, Greece, as a cradle of democracy and Western civilization, uh, you know, developed it to a certain degree, but along with it, uh, several pathologies developed as well. So we have inherited both the great elements of democracy, but also the pathologies uh, of, of democracy. And we need to look at it, we need to compare and contrast ancient democracy with modern democracies and see, you know, we have to study the past in order to shape <clears throat> our future. So um, this is how I have structured my uh, uh, lecture today. Mind you, this is a very brief version, abbreviated version of a semester-long seminar, <laughs> So, uh, which is very, very successful. I've done that at Dickinson several times. And um, I've tried to compress uh, and consolidate the most important aspects of it in a meaningful way and without tiring you. So here's how we're going to proceed. Follow me in this journey. We're going to start with the birth of democracy, the morphogenesis of democracy, the birth of its form. <coughs> Why in Greece? Why democracy was born in Greece and not anywhere else? Uh, there are several interacting factors and variables that led to the birth of democracy there and then and nowhere else. Then we will see the principles of democracy, the political philosophy of democracy and its principles as they were formed in ancient Greece and basically as laid out by Aristotle. Then we'll move on to the ideology of democracy, how democracy, you know, um, used certain mechanisms, the so-called integration mechanisms, to uh, promote and propagate uh, the political philosophy of democracy and to educate the citizens. Then we will talk about the pathology of democracy. What are the pathogenic traits and the pathogenic problems that led eventually to the decline and fall of democracy? And finally, we'll discuss the future of democracy. Are we at a dead end or we can change? 
Right. According to Aristotle, these are the different constitutions, the rule of one, the rule of a few, and the rule of majority. In the rule of one, we have the original monarchy and the degenerated one, which is tyranny. Um, and, you know, the same thing for the rule of a few, aristocracy is the original, and the degenerate is oligarchy. And then in the rule of majority, politia, which is our democracy, you know, Aristotle calls it politia, is the original. Democratia is the degenerate, <laughs> but by democratia he means ochlocracy, the rule of the mob. So, we started from, in ancient Greece, from monarchy, uh, in the Mycenaean times and the early Iron Age, then we moved to the aristocracy, 9th, 8th, 7th century, then to oligarchy, about 7th and 6th century, we have a lot of, you know, oligarchical and aristocratic constitutions there. Then in the 7th and the 6th century we have tyranny uh, in several Greek cities, including Athens by Sistratus and others. And then eventually we're moving to politia, democracy, 507 BC uh, with Pisistratus. And this politia, the ideal uh, democracy that was run by Pericles, and after his death it resulted into what we call, what he calls democratia, into what we call ochlocracy. So chronologically and in a kind of an archaeological and you know philosophical development and historical development this is how you know the constitutions move from one to another let's start with the birth of democracy these are the different parameters so we're going to look at each of them very briefly that led to the genesis of democracy in ancient Greece geopolitics landscape and environment political parameters, economic, social, the type of military and warfare, that's important, religion and athletics, believe it or not, and of course education and writing. So we have a system that is consisting of several subsystems and the change in those subsystems and those parameters led to the genesis of democracy at that time in that place. And we'll start with geopolitics. Greece has a very strong geopolitical importance. It's a strategic location in the crossroads of sea and land trade routes in the Mediterranean. It is the gateway between three, three continents, Asia, Europe, and Africa. It has multicultural contacts, and it receives and integrates several foreign influences. So Greece has um, acquired the ability to assimilate and integrate various you know, influences and um, external contacts. Another great parameter is landscape and environment. Greece has a mountainous landscape that divides its land into smaller regions. That's important. Democracy could never have developed in a country like Mesopotamia or Egypt, where every end is reachable, you know, through uh, you know, the navigation of rivers or, you know, on anything that's flat land. So, this landscape divides the whole country in smaller regions and really brings about a political fragmentation of, of the country in smaller units. Whether, you know, be it my, uh, palace states or city states, we have very, very small political units, and that's important. Also, it uh, promoted a sense of regionalism. In addition, we have limited land resources in Greece and severe environmental constraints. And all this led to the Greeks to seafaring and commerce. Um, 9,000 miles of coastline and 3,000 islands. So Greeks were pushed outwards because of, you know, environmental circumscription. And that made them 
go to, you know, to overseas and by doing so, when they started you know, exchanging products, they were also exchanging ideas and cultural influences. Political developments. Well, this political fragmentation of palace states uh, led to the emergence uh, at the end of the Mycenaean world. When the Mycenaean world collapsed at about 1100, the palace states gave way to smaller political unit, the city-state unit, the, what we call polis, P-O-L-I-S, and many words of what we use today, above all politics, political, uh, police, all these words come from the word polis, which is, you know, the city-state. So this becomes the main political unit from the 9th to the 4th or 3rd century BC until the time of Alexander. This political unit that appears in Greece is unique. Uh, it is small-sized, autonomous and independent, self-contained and self-sufficient. It has homogeneous populations, Athenians, Spartans, Corinthians, culturally integrated. It is urban-centric, is an urban center holding, you know, um, maintaining a territory around it. And it has socioeconomic classes dominated, at least from the 5th century onwards, by a strong middle class. This is unique. Nowhere in the world and never before we have an emergence of a middle class. Everywhere we have, wherever we have hierarchy, we have a small, you know, uh, hierarchy on the top and then a large, you know, base of the pyramid. Never before and nowhere else do we have a middle class. At the same time, we have economic developments. So all these parameters are happening at the very, very same time in the same place. In the 7th and 6th centuries BC, the Greeks colonized the whole Mediterranean, from Gibraltar all the way to the Black Sea, from you know, Central Europe all the way down to Sudan. And all this colonization that happens for different reasons leads to a change of economy from agriculture to trade-based. That's an important change. At the same time, we have the introduction of coinage that changes the barter economy. We're moving into an exchange economy. So we have accumulation of portable wealth. And that portable wealth accumulates in the hands of merchants, sailors, and craftsmen. That is the rising middle class. So we have intense socioeconomic differentiation to the benefit of the rising middle class. That formation of a rising middle class and eventually an aristocracy of wealth, which we call scientifically timocracy. Timi means price, money. So it is the aristocracy of wealth, which is very different from the aristocracy of birth that was valiant until that time. This middle class, this rising socially and economically rising middle class, will become the cornerstone of democracy. At the very same time, we have also social developments. This rise of the middle class caused social strife between the elite and the mass. We all know from Hegel and Marx that when one class holds power and the other one holds economy in their hands, then we have civil strife, social struggle. So we have a struggle between the aristocracy of birth the landowners, and the rising middle class, which is democracy, the aristocracy of wealth in the 6th century. The rising middle class first demands equal um, you know, treatment, justice, just like in the French Revolution. The French Revolution didn't start with equal political rights. It started with the right to justice. So they demand justice. Legislation recorded, written legislation instead of customary law. 
and participation of the wealthy middle class eventually in the political administration. And therefore, we have attempts like those of Lycurgos in Sparta, who writes at the constitution of the Spartan state, Dracon, very harsh, we still call very harsh laws today, draconian laws, and of course, Solon in Athens, that try to basically uh, find a balance between the two fighting classes. That is actually resolved by tyranny. 7th, 6th century BC, tyranny breaks down the aristocratic allegiance and solidarity, thus empowering the mass over the elite. The word tyrant today is, you know, has very bad connotations. For the ancient Greeks, it wasn't. A tyrant was not something bad, it was something good. It was, he was an aristocrat that sidelined his fellow aristocrats and sided with the people. He didn't give the people vote, but he had to have the, let's say, the tolerance of the people. How do you get the tolerance of the people? You do public works, you know, entertainment, you know, theater, athletics, give them money. That's, you know, what's going on. But by doing so, the tyrant breaks the allegiance and solidarity and gives way, basically, uh, opens the gateway for the mass, <clears throat> for the victory of the mass over the elite. We have Philon at Argos, Periander in Corinth, Polycrates at Samos, and Pisistratus in Athens. And finally, at about 507 BC, you know, a new constitution is born, that is of democracy by Cleisthenes in Athens. Apart from all these parameters, we also have military developments that have a huge impact for the emergence of democracy. We have a change in the warfare tactics in the 6th century BC. Until then, you know, the war was done by cavalry and chariots of the aristocratic knights. By the 6th century BC, we have the formation of the phalanx of warriors and battleships, the triremes. All these are manned by middle and lower citizens. Therefore, these citizens now defend their city-state and therefore eventually, very soon, they are going to demand political representation. Apart from warfare, we have a change in Greek athletics. Believe it or not, that is a major parameter that exists in Greece and nowhere else. The athletics originally, I mean, and a parenthesis here, you know, because the Greeks would say Sophia Sarhi onomaton episcopsis. You know, we become wise when we start visit the name, the etymology. Athletics, not sports. Athletics comes from the word athlon and athla, two words with the same root. Athla means the labor, you know, the competition. Athlon is the award. So it's the same word that connotates the process and the end result. So the athletics started originally as an expression of the aristocratic ideology. They were display of the, the ability and the potential of the aristocrats. 776 BC, the first Olympic Games. The motto of the aristocracy was en aristevin ke pirochon emenealon. That is what Glavkos says that his father told him in the Iliad. En aristevin, always be the best. Ke pirochon emenealon, and always stay above everybody else. That's the aristocratic motto. Now, by the 6th century, participation opens to all Greeks, regardless of class and wealth status, because of the need for well-trained armies of common citizens. So, until then, it was, you know, the Olympic Games and the other athletics were actually a preparation for war, and they needed well-trained armies of middle and lower class citizens, and that changes the athletic ideology. Athletes, now, are judged solely on merit and ability. That is why they compete in the nude. They are stripped of all socioeconomic and ethnic differences. 
This is the meaning of nudity, athletic nudity. At the same time, the stadium becomes an arena for personal, social, ethnic competition and distinction and a platform for cultural and ethnic integration of all Greeks. This is your passport to be Greek if you're allowed to participate in the Olympic Games. So it's a platform for integration, but it's also, also a, a, a kind of a social or ethnic release with that competition. Basically, the Games become not a preparation for war, but an alternative to war. And that leads eventually to democracy. In the cities themselves, imagine, you know, aristocratic in the time of aristocracy, people, members of the aristocracy, never had any personal contact with people of the lower class. They would frequent different places, they would frequent different gyms. It was completely distant, they were completely distant. Now, they all train in the same facilities, in the same palestras, in the same gymnasia. They're all naked, and although they hate each other at the beginning, they have to embrace each other when they wrestle. When you wrestle, when you box, you have to have physical contact. Physical contact. Even against someone that you hate, brings you together and helps you understand him and accept him. So all this eventually, by the 6th and the 5th century, brought different social classes together, integrated them, and brought socioeconomic integration of population and equality between social classes. The last factor is education. In the history of human script, we have three stages of writing. The hieroglyphic, <clears throat> which is basically uh, depending on uh, pictograms, and you need to know anywhere between 20, 30, 40,000 pictograms, and each pictogram can take different meanings. For example, an eye in the, in the Egyptian hieroglyphics may mean an eye, or with a, the appropriate uh, indications may mean a verb, a C, or a combination with something else, you know, an eye and an elephant's tusk means the dentist, the man who examines teeth. So you can make, you know, different combinations, but all this requires a lot of imagination. You need to know about 40,000, 50,000 signs. So that becomes a prerogative for the powerful and the educated. The scribes are very important. This is a powerful weapon that's not allowed to the people, that's not afforded to the people. Then we have the syllabic systems like coniform and linear A and linear B where each sign acquires a phonetic value of a vowel or a consonant of a vowel. You need about 150 of them. Still, that's difficult. And then come the Phoenicians, and especially the Greeks, who create an alphabet, where you don't, you're not based on pictograms or syllabograms, but on letters. Each letter has a unique phonetic value. You need 20 to 26. Even an idiot can learn how to read and write. So, that, from that point onwards, the prerogative of aristocracy and hierarchy stops being a prerogative and it's being diffused gradually to the base of the social period. That completely changes the world. This alone changed the world. And this happens in Greece. Now, take all these effects cumulatively and the multiplier effect that they have in the, in the, in the main system, that is why democracy was born at that time in that place. And of course, the diffusion of writing and education in the Greek society led to written communication, law, politics, religion, trade, art, and of course to scientific research and literature. Laws are being published on inscriptions. Common citizens write up names of those who want to be ostracized on shirts. And then look at this, look at the bottom one. Exequius Epoesen. <clears throat> who is Exequius? He was one of the greatest painters 
of black figure vase painting in the extension BC. He was not even an Athenian, he was a resident alien, like me when I first came in the United States. Uh, now I'm a citizen. Um, so he writes in beautiful Athenian and he signs. Think about this. Nowhere else in the world, before or after this, until the Renaissance, do we have artists signing proudly their names on the products? Nowhere. Egypt, Mesopotamia, Central America, South America, North America, China, Indus Valley, nowhere. We don't know their names. These are the first ones that proudly name their names. Why? This is the rising middle class. They claim their rights. They are proud of what they're doing. And look at the inscription. It doesn't say that I made it. It says, Exekias, a poisoned man. Exekias made me. Who speaks? The artifact. It's a living organism. It's a creature. And this way, the painter presents himself as God, as a little God who creates his own creations. Amazing things when you start studying you know, the influence of you know, writing in, um, in democracy. So, <coughs> in short, this is how and why democracy was born in Greece at that time. Let's take a look at the principles of democracy as you know, outlined by Aristotle in politics. First of all, freedom of action, eleftheria. Freedom of speech, isigoria. Both of them, however, according to Aristotle, are not absolute but limited. Our freedom of speech and our freedom of action stops where someone else's freedom starts. So they are conditional, not absolute. Equality before the law, isonomia, that's absolute. There's no exception to this, according to Aristotle. The majority rule, mass versus elite, pleopsifia. And again, this is not, I mean, this is also conditional. Also, the majority needs to take into account the wishes of the minority. But it's majority rules, pleopsifia. Something that most democratic citizens don't take into account. Accountability. Euthina. And the accountability is not only on the politicians, it's on every one of us. When we make a choice and we vote, we are individually responsible for our choices. We don't want to accept this. We want the responsibility to diffuse to the general you know, number, but this is not the case. We have individual um, uh, responsibility as citizens and as leaders. Tripartite division of government. This didn't start with Montesquieu. It started, you know, in the late 6th, early 5th century. We have the division in legislative, executive, judicial. And now, today, the last 300 years, we have another pillar of democracy, the press. And by contrast with the executive and the legislative power that actually limit our rights, right? we accept the limitation of our rights by these two authorities, the judicial and the press are there to support our rights. They are supposed to be on our side. So when something is not going well, it's not basically because of the executive or the legislative, it's because of the judicial. And in, in our case, because of the press as well. The demos is all powerful, Aristotle says. The public officials are empowered by the people to govern and are accountable to the people, the assembly or the ecclesia. That reminds you, of the people, by the people, for the people. And don't forget, in the Gettysburg Address was written by Abraham Lincoln on the train to Gettysburg, having in his hands the funeral oration of Pericles. So the Gettysburg Address is a summary of Pericles' funeral oration. And it's a beautiful you know, summary as well. 
Now, apart from these principles, the Athenian democracy created control mechanisms, which we also have in place today. These control mechanisms, they are, we call them checks and balances, are set in place to avert undue concentration of power and safeguard democracy. <clears throat> in ancient Athenians, uh, in ancient Athenian democracy, we have the election by lot and or vote. So the office eligibility does not depend on economic or social status. On the side, you see the mechanism, what survives from the mechanism, and an actual reconstruction of how they would choose jurors just before every trial. You see those tags. These tags were bronze tags and they were inserted in those holes, hundreds of them. Then on the left, there is um, a kind of a tube, and in that tube they would drop white and black pebbles. Any row of tags that was aligned with a black pebble, they would be dismissed. Any row of tags that was aligned with a white pebble, they would be called to duty. This way, the choice of the jurors would happen a few hours before the trial. It was, you know, 301 or 501 jurors. You can never possibly know who's going to be in your trial. And of course, you can never bribe 301 people. Well, you know, no matter how many you bribe, you don't stand a chance. So, election by vote or law. Uh, we have limited service. The Athenian archons would serve for only one year. And there was a possibility for a second year with an, uh, a year in between. So, non-consecutive uh, terms. And only for one year. There was salary for public offices. That was a motivation for poor citizens to avert corruption. And the principle of collectivity in public offices. Public offices were usually collective bodies, not single offices. So there were checks and balances <coughs> between them. More eligibility screenings. Before being voted or lotted, they had to go through a screening. It happens today as well. There was a monthly confirmation monthly confirmation hearings by the bully, by the Council of the 500, and the Ecclesia during the term. Every month they were reconfirmed, so they were checked upon every month. There was also the case of impeachment. If they were found, you know, that they would, you know, didn't do their job properly, they could be impeached. That was a very serious offense, and I'll tell you more about this later on. At the end of their term, they would all go through a trial, each one of them. <clears throat> that was called euthina. And during that open trial, any Athenian citizen could stand up and accuse them for not doing their job and bring, uh, you know, uh, proof. So then they would be, you know, reverted to the legal system, and the punishment was death, fine, or ostracism. The Athenian citizens could never be tortured and could never be jailed. They could never be deprived of, of their personal freedom. So there were only those three punishments. Now. If you want to become a politician, you would have to think it twice, <laughs> thinking about all this and the punishments. There was also ostracism. You can see the ostraca there. In the first assembly every year, they would have this voting. Everyone that would gather more than 6,000 shirts with their name on it would be ostracized from Athens, expelled for 10 years. They wouldn't touch his property, they wouldn't touch his family, but this way they would disconnect him from his network in police. Now, think about this. This guy has done nothing wrong. This is preemptive action. <laughs> this is punishing of intent. Not even intent. They don't know that they have such intent. But this guy, any of these guys, has become all too powerful. 
and he has become a threat to democracy, to us. This is a comprehensive, this is a preemptive action. To them, it was absolutely perfect. So, you see the different names, Aristides, Kimon, you know, Pericles, etc., etc., etc. This started in 507 BC and went on until 417. 417, two big parties were talking about this just before the Peloponnesian, the Sicilian expedition, and you have Nicias in charge of the uh, conservatives and Alcibiades, the nephew of Pericles, in charge of the radicals. They know that the things are polarized and one of them is going to be expelled. So, ostracism <laughs> takes place the next day, and someone called Hyperbolus gets 15,000 votes. And everybody looks around, they don't know who this guy is. Not even his own mother knew who he was. And then the Athenians realized what was done, that the two political parties had actually, you know, you know coordinated all this, so a third person would be expelled. And this is when ostracism stops. They stop the ostracism. And another parenthesis, look at the shares. We found thousands of them. We analyzed them. We thought that if we studied them epigraphically, that's called paleographic, you know, studying, we would be able to see how the ancient Athenians would write, you know, spelling mistakes, you know, the, the level of their uh, literacy and so on and so forth. We studied thousands of them, of them and we found 80 different handwritings. 80 out of thousands shares. What's going on? Party politics. The shares were prepared. At the time of ostracism, each of the two political parties had scribes. They were writing down and handing them over. That's 5th century BC party politics, 2,500 years ago. We still do the same thing today. Prepared ballots. Uh, finally, you know, to come back to the different, you know, the things about democracy and, and uh, um, checks and balances, the liturgies. Very wealthy Athenians would have, apart from tax, they would have to do certain liturgies to actually take over, this is called a wealth tax, or a distribution of wealth. They would um, take over the funding of a theatrical performance, Chorigia, or Triirachia, the funding of a, a whole trireme and its crew for a whole year. So that was beyond and above, you know, the normal tax. It was a wealth tax that led, you know, to um, uh, redistribution of wealth. So we're done with, you know, the principles and the mechanisms of the democracy, and we're moving into the integration mechanisms. This is a very interesting topic. I mean, this causes a lot of discussion among the students <coughs> and participating faculty. Democracy developed then and now certain integration mechanisms to propagate its own ideology and educate the citizens. The first concept of democracy, realism. All the other constitutions focus on charismatic people, a tyrant, a king, aristocrats, charismatic people with great intentions or with great morals. And, you know, when I hear great intentions and holy aims, I mean, obviously these subjective social uh, constructs, you know, the worst actions are filled with great intentions. Democracy has realism. Democracy is based on the, uh, the a priori realistic admission that absolute power corrupts even the best of people. So, democracy doesn't care about best intentions, regardless of good intentions. Democracy is all about maintaining procedures that safeguard a defined frame 
for conflict of ideas, not conflict of people, through dialectics, thesis, antithesis, synthesis, and compromise of conflicting interests. So it's realism on the side of democracy and adapted by democracy. Real time. Democracy embraces real time. It focuses on the present and the future, unlike monarchy and aristocracy that focus on the past because they have to legitimize the position and you know the, the leadership of the aristocrats and the tyrants. So democracy doesn't care about the past. Democracy cares about the present and the future. The transition from thesmos to nomos. Thesmos is the customary law. The aristocrats and the tyrants loved this because these were unwritten laws. You can apply them any way you want to whomever you want. But nomos means written law. It applies to all, it is recorded, and secures equality and justice. And this is what democracy embraces and brings forth. Democracy moves from traditional conservatism, all the other constitutions, tyranny, aristocracy, monarchy, are, you know, integrate traditional conservatism. They survive because of conservatism. They don't like change and they don't like criticism. Democracy is based on radical criticism of the old ethos and the past ideologies. Strong criticism and satire of current structures, ideas and people, important people through philosophy, oratory, and comedy. Criticism through philosophy helps in the theoretical level. Criticism through oratory is political debate. Criticism through comedy is public sentiment. So through these you know, areas, through criticism in philosophy, oratory, and comedy, democracy embraces radical criticism. Democracy moves from the clan-based society to the rule of the mass and the importance of the individual. The individual is the main, you know, the main, uh, uh, let's say, uh, unit. For, although in aristocracy and tyranny and all the other constitutions, the main unit is the clan. In democracy, is the individual. In democracy, we have a unique thing, rhetoric. Where else do we have rhetoric? In what other constitution? It's useless anywhere else. So we have a development of rhetoric where for the courts of law and for the political debates in public forum. And these were developed by the sophists and the professional public orators in the fifth and the fourth century. Sophists like Protagoras and Critias, who were able, they were proud to say that they were able to make the black look white and the white look black. That's not necessarily great you know, rhetoric, but the ability of convincing people for the impossible that is put into the service of democracy. All the other constitutions use mythology, tyranny, monarchy, aristocracy. Why? Because this is how they sanctify and legitimize their power. Democracy you know, focuses on historical fact. So we have the development of historiography with Herodotus and the development of you know, history with Thucydides. We have a transition from fiction to historical fact, and this is used and manipulated by democracy as an integration mechanism. Something you haven't think, thought of, possibly. The emergence of theater and dramatic poetry. Theater emerges at the time just before you know, the, the uh, flourishing, the, appear, the emergence of democracy. The previous, the other constitutions focused on epic poetry, for example, monarchy and kingship want epic poetry, you know, 
singing of the deeds of the kings, the heroes, and so on and so forth, legitimizing uh, their position in, so in society. Or lyric poetry, personal statements. However, democracy focuses on tragedy and comedy, on dramatic poetry. Tragedy addresses ethics, law and justice, political and moral dilemmas, civic identity, through allegorical myths, balancing between the elite, the actors represent the elite, Oedipus Rex, and the chorus represents the mass. So the conflict well, that we have in democracy between mass and elite is visually represented in, in tragedy. By the way, a parenthesis here, why through allegorical myths? Why are they writing, you know, Antigone or Oedipus Rex? Why are they going back to ancient myths in order to present, you know, dilemmas, you know, in ethics, law and justice? Why not contemporary issues? They started with contemporary issues. The Persians of Aeschylus, Miletus, Miletus, uh, the sack of Miletus by Phrynichus in you know, the 490s. But then, right after the sack of Miletus, the Athenians helped the militians you know, revolt from the Persians, and then they abandoned them. So the Persians went into Miletus, sacked the whole city, killed thousands, and enslaved tens of thousands. And then Phrynichus, a few years later, presented Miletus, sack of Miletus as a tragedy in Athens, in the Dionysus Theatre. 20,000 Athenians were crying on the audience. The next day, he suffered, you know, actually he was sued for causing pain and suffering <laughs> to the Athenians. That was a lesson <laughs> for all, you know, the poets. They never did that again. So they resorted to what, you know, after the Hollywood movies, when you see this has nothing to do, it's fictional, it has nothing to do with you know, real persons or situations. That's exactly what it is. They said, okay, I'm not going to pay so much money for waking those idiots. I'm going to do something else. So they were using old myths, adjusting them appropriately so they can reflect contemporary situations. But that was a blessing for us because comedy and tragedy became diachronic. They transcend time and place. If they have to do with Alcibiades or this and this and that, they would be of interest to us. Take Antigone or Oedipus Rex and present it in a, in a theater in China. 20,000 Chinese are going to be crying. They have the same impact precisely because democracy enforced this. And then comedy, on the other hand, comedy expresses the right of parousia and expands it. Parousia means boldness of speech, but that was limited to the citizens in the ecclesia in the assembly. Only the citizens had the right to be bold in their speech, to express, you know, uh, um, clearly and without fear. With comedy, that right expands to all the Athenians. Who was attending the theatrical plays? Citizens, non-citizens, resident aliens, women, children, slaves. If they liked something or didn't like something, they would cheer or throw fruit or their food they had with them on, on the actors and the directors, you know, expressing, you know, approval or not. That, that empowers people who are not citizens to have a stand, to express their opinion. So comedy does what? Where else do we have this? Nowhere else. It's just in ancient Athens, in ancient Greece. Comedy and laughter becomes the weapon of the weak against the powerful. Aristotle Poetics, the first volume that has disappeared on, on comedy, because by ridicule someone, you're dissolving fear and respect together. Respect is a mixture, it's respect and fear. By dissolving fear, you're destroying respect. This way, Aristotle said in the introduction, you know, laughter can break down God. 
And that is why in the monasteries, when you know, the monks would see that, they would throw the book away. They would never you know, uh, copy it. Another integration mechanism, unique again. The Athenian democracy moves from natural philosophy to politics, political and ethics philosophy. So we have a movement of philosophy from cosmology and cosmogony to man himself. Protagoras says, you know, man is the measure of all things. And along with that, to political, socioeconomic and ethical issues. And this political philosophy propagates the ideals and the principles of the Athenian democracy. So they use this as an integration mechanism. And at the same time, they shift from abstract theoretical thought, the inductive method, and they try the empirical research, Aristotle, deductive method, reasoning and factual analysis that eventually will lead to modern science. All this became tools for democracy, integration mechanisms, because they propagated the democratic ideals. Narrative art, another great thing that democracy used and employed. In the aristocratic and monarchic constitutions, we have generic, symbolic, iconic, or monocenic scenes, like symbols. Heracles doing this or doing that, and so on and so forth. Timeless, emblematic value. We move from that to, from that to narrative polycenic with many scenes, and polysemic art, art that can be read at many different levels. Democracy realizes the great potential in this and adapts it. At the same time, we have a change from mythological themes that legitimize aristocratic birthrights, like in the archaic Athenian black figure pottery, to everyday life scenes illustrating the life of the common citizens, which happens in the 5th century BC in the red figure pottery. So the red figure pottery that's at the time of democracy adapts not the mythological things. Who of the citizens wants to know, you know the aristocratic origin of this and this and that? They want to see themselves on their vases. That's why they're filled with erotic scenes, with scenes from the school. It's a private and public life fully displayed for them to enjoy. And they eliminate or replace politically charged symbols. When democracy emerged in Athens, they did away with Heracles and they adapted Theseus. Because Heracles was too much infected, you know, or connected with tyranny. And the very first law that the Athenian democracy made when they went into power they banned the archaic statues of the aristocrats from the cemeteries because we're all equal in front of death. So they did away with anything that made the aristocrats even different, even you know, in, in the cemeteries themselves. And finally, processions and festivals. See how democracy uses processions and festivals as integration mechanisms. Processions and festivals like the Panathenaic procession uses mass participation, everybody, not only citizens, but all the city, citizens and non-citizens, children, slaves, everyone. It promotes cultural integration and collective memory. It creates a kind of a mnemoscape, a landscape of memory. That mnemoscape creates a common civic identity and forges bonding between the people. And at the same time, it ranks them. Someone's gonna be at the front, someone's gonna be at the end of the line. Someone's gonna be more actively someone is going to be more passively participating. So, in the same, at the same time, these parades and festivals bond the people and rank the people. Great mechanism. Like the Panathenaic procession that connects like a human thread the past 
the Dipilon Cemetery, the ancestors, the present, which is the living people, the Agora, and the timeless future, the site of the gods. Think about this. And when you see, this is a human thread that connects past, present, and future, dead, living, and the gods in a single amazing procession that bonds people and ranks them. And then the frieze, the Panathenaic frieze on the Parthenon is what? Deification of democracy. Mortals depicted on a temple. This is the deification of democracy in the hands uh, of Pericles. All right. Concluding. I'm just reading you the passage. Our democracy is getting self-destroyed for it abused the rights of freedom and equality. For it taught the citizens to regard insolence as right, illegality as freedom, impertinence as equality, and anarchy as happiness. That's Isocrates in the 4th century BC. It sounds all too familiar. So it echoes in our ears <laughs> in a terrifying way. Are we moving that way? What are the pathogenic traits that led democracy to its demise and fall? First of all, the power struggle between mass and elite, the polarization. The mutual fear of mass to elite and vice versa. Instead of integrating, they were polarized. And this mutual fear was expressed in a variety of ways. For example, the fear of the mass towards the elite was expressed in the punishment of the leaders. Think about all the leaders in ancient Athens. All of them, except Pericles, died in jail or ostracized. Miltiades, Themistocles, Aristides, Cimon, uh, Alcibiades, everyone. All the great leaders, they punished them all. That's the fear of the mass versus the elite. On the other hand, we have the limited political rights. The elite doesn't want to give rights to everyone to vote. So only males and males who have property were voting, and eventually Pericles opened it up to all the male citizens. But that's exactly what happened in the modern years. Think about the first US Constitution. Who votes? White people that have property, those who have stake in the game. It's the same in the first constitution of the French Revolution. It's the same in the, or the first constitution in Greece, 1821. The first three countries that established democracy in the modern world have limited political rights to only those of those who have a stake in the game. That's the fear of leadership of elite towards the mass. Do you know what was the first country that allowed full political rights to all male citizens, regardless of property or education or anything else? Germany, 1880s. It was Bismarck. The result, 20 years from then, two world wars <laughs> waged by that country. So you know, they probably were right at that point precisely because of the lack of education. So this is the power struggle that really messed things up. And number two and number three are actually problems of the leaders. Demagogy and populism. They appeared already in the 5th century BC in democracy. Just making sure that you pet the people, you know, don't make you know, harsh decisions, but make you know, uh, decisions that people like. That's not leadership. Uh, so demagogy and populism destroyed democracy. Also, political parties that were not formed on principles or ideology, but they were prosopocentric. That was also another parameter that destroyed ancient democracy. Number four and five is inherent problems. 
like the lack of continuity of government. When you change government every year, like in ancient Athens, you have no continuity. You know, and this was happening out of fear for the elite. But when you change government every year, really you have you know, lack of continuity. Also, the misoperation and dysfunction of the judicial system. In ancient Greece, the judicial system imposed this principle, which is the reverse of what we have today. You had to prove you were innocent. So the weight of testimony was on the side of the accused, not on the side of the accuser. That led to dysfunction of, of justice. Number six and seven have to do with the people themselves. Apathy, indifference, decreasing political participation of the citizens. In the fourth century, there were people that had a, a cord painted red and they were pushing the latecomers. Uh, and when they would leave, they would have red paint on them so everybody would know that they came late to the assembly and they were stigmatized. That's fifth century. In the fourth century, people really don't participate. They become apathetic. Apathy and indifference, we see even today. We have crucial elections and we have a participation of 50%. This is the you know, demise of democracy. And finally, education. Winston Churchill said, the best argument against democracy is a five-minute discussion with the average voter. <laughs> All right. Meaning what? You have to deal with people that don't have the proper education. But that's not their problem, it's your problem. It's the problem of the state. So, we've tried everything. We've tried to correct the top six, but have we corrected education? In, in the ancient times, education was based on papyrus scrolls. So in order to, to study something, you know, you have to open the whole road, read everything until you reach what you wanted to study. That meant that you would study a lot. You couldn't select. Then, in the first century AD, and especially in the Byzantine years, we have the codex, the book. Now, you have to go through pages. You still have to study more, but you can pinpoint the areas that you need to, you know, the passages that you need to get. Still, you've got scientists, but not pan-scientists. Today, what do we have? You want to find something, you Google it, you just get something, you know, a, a response which you can't evaluate where it's coming from. So our students do what? They get a lot of information, most of the times wrong. They don't get any knowledge. So what we've done is we have destroyed education. And education is not really teaching people what to think, but how to think. That's a big difference. It's a need to learn how to criticize, learn how to reject, and the most difficult of all, especially for the older of us, learn how to relearn. If you learn something wrongly, it's more difficult to unlearn it and relearn. Gradual discovery of our own ignorance, gaining knowledge and critical ability in order to act. What's the point of having knowledge without acting, without applying it? So the point of knowledge, the point of education and its contribution to democracy, exactly what you know, the IWP is doing here, what the Mycenaean Foundation is doing in Greece, what Dickinson College, all the other institutions are doing throughout, is exactly preparing citizens to act, apply. There's no point in theoretical knowledge. It serves nothing. We need praxis, that is, applied knowledge. So I will finish with this. I mean, Isocrates aphorism that I read to you rings alarmingly all too pragmatic and relevant today. 250 years since the resurgence of democracy in the modern world. 
It's been 250 years. Mm. Let me remind you here, and I don't want, to, don't want to freak you out, that it was about 350 years the life of the ancient Athenian democracy. It was about 350 or 370 years the life of the Roman Republic. So we're right there. <laughs> we're at 250 years and we have already started seeing, you know, the degeneration. So, are we running in a similar cycle? Repeating all mistakes, starting at the same juncture, heading towards the same dead end. To navigate forward, find solutions and shape our future, we need first to study our past. Thank you for your attention. Excellent. So we have to answer questions. Uh, yes, it, it, not exactly how we have it today, for, but they had certain measures. For example, payment for those who would serve, you know, in, in politics, or whenever they would go, for example, to uh, watch a theatrical play, they wouldn't pay; they would be paid. So the ticket was reversed. You know, the Athenian state would pay every citizen <laughs> amount and a certain amount to go and watch the theatrical play. So that was kind of a redistribution of wealth and you know, promoting education for the citizens. And they had other measures like this, not as well as organized as we have it today, but there was a thought of basically you know, um, supporting the very lower class, not for any other reason, but because they knew that you know, their vote counted as much. <laughs> the votes are not weighed, the votes are counted. So that was the, you know, the reason behind it. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I, I have a cultural question. So, in the Western world, if you take Aristotle's uh, typology, the way we see democracy is that it's sacrosanct. It's not the same as all the others. It's better. It's the only legitimate one. So, or the least worst. <laughs> or the least worst. And that's a good thing. So my question is comparing that to the ancient culture, because in the ancient world, Athens, Syracuse, Rome, it, back and forth at certain periods. It wasn't that firm, I think, democracy. Again, you're the expert. So, do they have a greater tolerance for the notion of we might lose democracy because then we might recover it later? Or? Excellent question. Look, you have to imagine yourself at 507, in 507 BC when the Athenians come up with the idea of allowing everyone to vote and dictating the, fu the future of everyone. Incomprehensible. In a world that for thousands of years was run by tyrants, arist aristocrats, and, and kings, that was an innovative thought. And that was exactly their fear. They, were fel they felt alone. It was, it's not like us today. We feel today that we are part of the Western world and we have created you know, solidarity in you know, all the democratic states. So when we feel threatened by the Soviet Union then, or you know, the terrorism now, or um, uh, um, uh, authoritarian, you know, uh, we feel that we are in an alliance. The Athenians were by themselves. And especially the Greek city-states that adapted the same thing, they felt lonely. They were living like that and thriving in a world of absolute power. And that was the fear that it will revert to something like that 
That's why they defeated the Persians. When you have 10,000 Athenians against 300,000 Persians, when you have 300 Spartans against a million Persians, it's not only the tactics or warfare or, you know, how better you're prepared. It's not fighting only for your homeland. You're fighting for freedom. They're fighting for their king. You're fighting for your own freedom. And the fear of reverting to something that they are. So, but that fear backfired. That fear was expressed through all those control mechanisms. They feared not only the outside dangers. They feel their inside dangers from their own leaders. So they, don't, they didn't just make sure that they would you know, do away with the corrupt leaders, but with all leaders. So they destroyed the best they had. Yes? Yes, Andrew. Uh, without getting you to blame anybody, uh, I would just like to have your answer in light of what you said, and it was a very lecture, which uh, of the two groups of citizenry would you say has the most influence, again, without being moralistic, but has the most influence on the future of the American democracy? The populace, mostly I mean the media and the academy from the bottom up, or the political classes, including the White House, the departments, and the representatives from the top down. Who of the two, if, if you think you can separate, would have the most influence upon the future, if any, of the USA? Excellent question. Thank you. If you do away with one of them, you're losing democracy. You need both of them because one you know, balances the other. What you actually need to absorb the impact and the influence of both, because the influence of both is necessary, is a very thick and strong middle class that cares. As long as we care, well, nothing of this will make us you know, balance off. So my answer is that we need both, and you know, their, their, their influence should be equal, but only if there is a, a very strong middle class. The middle class is the backbone of, of ancient modern democracy. And if you look at various democracies or republics in, in Europe or even in the United States, the state, what kind of education are we giving our kids? It's a very stylized, you know, we, let me put it, not for the United States, but for other countries. Let me put it bluntly. We create generations of idiots. They need to know to do certain things, certain things well, but they have no critical ability. And the state wants them not to have critical ability. Because if they can have critical ability, then their vote is not for buy, for, for purchase, or for influence. So, I mean, again, too much administration can be bad. Too much populism can be bad. But all these are absorbed only by the middle class. Making very proud to be a Greek American by your talk. Me too. This this wheel has this gravity. See for the Mosia. That's that is a small metal vote. These are ballots, and this is the ballot. Uh, vase, I mean, uh, the ballot uh, base, you know. Uh, so it says, Psyphos de Mosia, public ballot. So they were allowed to have this and they would vote about different things. Right. Yes. Thank you very much for your presentation, really excellent. Any question? Would it be possible to have your slide 
I actually have a similar presentation, but I can put that up as well. It's on the site of the Mycenaean Foundation, which I'm a president. I will forward this to, to Dean uh, Marlowe, and he can send a link, so you can, or uh, the IWP can put it up on a link, by all means, and then you can, you know, you have it in my computer, you have my permission to put it up, and people can download it. And uh, a question, an electoral system that is a proportional rather than a uh, well, I have this question from many, you know, many people. Uh, well, this kind of system goes back to the early ages uh, of, you know, the early our ancestors here in the United States. I'm talking now as an American, <laughs> but it's mine as well now. Uh, and um, that was the fear of allowing the majority. And it was a, a well-rooted fear at that time. I mean, you see, the Americans did it, the French did the same thing. When the French went overboard in the last phase of the French Revolution, you saw what happened. You know, there were more dead in the guillotines rather than alive. So this thing goes out of hand. The same thing happened with Greece in 1821. So there was legitimate fear. Uh, and it worked for centuries. Now, if you're asking me, should we change it or not? Um, I would still be hesitant to change it for one reason, especially for the United States, because we don't know who is here. We have, you know, legal immigrants, we have illegal immigrants, we have people that vote that they shouldn't vote, <laughs> we have people that should vote and they don't vote. So do we really know what is our, you know, what is the body of citizens? Who is voting? Have we defined who should be voting and when and, you know, after so how many years and so on and so forth. It's a country that receives so many immigrants and legally or illegally, just like now Greece and many other countries in Europe. And all this has distorted, you know, the electoral vote. Uh, the, I mean, the, the popular vote. So I would still be hesitant, although I can label myself, I won't label myself as a, 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 a radical or conservative. Um, I would still be hesitant right now to change it in the United States. Thank you for the talk. So my question is, in your opinion, what education system could improve our democracy? Great question. All right, here's what we're trying to do. First of all, uh, education, proper education should have three axes. Knowledge, communication of knowledge development of critical ability and original thinking. If you have only knowledge and you have critical ability or original thinking, you don't receive education. You just receive information. So that's basic. Now, on top of that, uh, education must be interdisciplinary. You're not being taught philosophy or biology or politics. It has to be an interdisciplinary approach. So you have to be able to move from science to science and from field to field with some knowledge of, of the field. It has to be cross-cultural. Uh, it has to be experimental. It has to be experiential, because whatever you learn, whatever you read and write, only 20% you maintain. Whatever you experience, you maintain 80%. So it has to be experiential. It has to be effective. It has to be sensitive to different learning methods. And above all, it has to give you the ability to apply it become practice. If you receive education, 
with that checklist and you've got everything, you're in the right course. Thank you. Yes. What you just said. Last question. I didn't hear you. Oh. Is there a role to say certain people are not educated enough to pass an intelligent uh, Not educated enough. I mean, especially in the United States, I, I, you know, we have one of the best systems, although not the best. You know, in Denmark, in Sweden, in Norway, why are they doing better than us? Why are they having better educational systems? And of course, these are countries of two or three million people, not countries of 300 million people. Our issue is not the quantity of, of education, it's the quality. Yeah. That, that's, that's my fear. I think we don't have the right quality. We haven't developed critical ability. And, you know, the first thing I say to my students when I enter my class, and I've taught Egyptian, Near Eastern, you know, everything. They think, you know, when I, I tell them something, that this is written on stone. So I keep telling them from day one, do not believe what I'm telling you. I'm just showing you what I've seen, what I've read through my eyes. So don't chew knowledge. Think about that critically, absorb. So no source is, they don't understand this. It takes them four years. It's only, and that's Dickinson, that's one of the best institutions. It's not a, you know, a community college where you know, people go in and out. It's one of the best institutions and still students don't get it. I have only a 20 or 25% of students that realize by the fourth year what critical ability means, and only a 5% that does original thinking. And that's one of the best qualities in the United States. That's disappointing. Thank you all. all right. Thank you very much.